Alrighty, we're in First Samuel chapter 14. And we're going to pick it up today at uh, verse 24, where we left off last week. Well, let's open a word of prayer and then we'll get started. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that we can uh, have our own personal copy of it and open it up and study it together as the body of Christ. And Lord, we pray tonight, think of Jenna who's traveling and, and uh, just uh, her trip and, and uh, Ken who's working and others, Lord. Uh, just pray that you would uh, just uh, just help them uh, through their their situations. And Lord, we also pray tonight that you would open our heart to your word and and uh, just give us the wisdom we need to understand what's going on here in, in 1 Samuel 14. And Lord, uh, we pray that you would just uh, just lead us through this evening. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you remember last week started chapter 14. And before that, we looked at Saul, who was acting foolishly out of fear. And then we saw in chapter 14, Jonathan, who acted boldly in faith, and we talked about how we don't fight like the world fights, that we move forward in faith, and victory comes from the Lord, we understand that, and today we're going to look at some inconsistency in Saul's life, in his leadership, and really some ridiculous vows or rules that he put into place. And remember, we're looking at the rise and fall, now we're in the fall part of the arc of Saul, uh, his downfall, you might say, and it, it tonight when we we read the, this text, you're going to see a lot of decisions that, that Saul made were just not very wise. It all comes out of the text where his son Jonathan eats some honey. <laughs> it's just kind of ridiculous. I mean, you think, well, okay, what's wrong with that? Uh, but sometimes in life, people come up with ridiculous rules. I remember I went to a Christian college who was that was very conservative. And they had the most ridiculous rules I could ever even imagine. You know, men had to have their hair, couldn't touch their collar, it had to be off their ears. Women couldn't wear pants, they always had to be wearing dresses, dressed modestly, that's not a problem, but they always had to be in a dress. You couldn't listen to any music with a beat. It's like every, all, all music has a beat. But, you know, this is, these are rules that they contrived in an effort to protect the student from carnal worldliness, but they were really ridiculous when you stopped and honestly took them at their face value. And then the worst thing was is they tried to support them from Scripture, you know, which was just ridiculous because the Bible doesn't speak to some things and it didn't speak to any of those things. And so tonight we're going to see where, where Saul lays down this rule about his men not eating but sometimes in our lives, there's inconsistencies, and we see this in the life of Paul. And we all know what we should be doing, and sometimes we do the right thing for short periods of time, but then sometimes we fall back to our old habits, or we, 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 we fall short. Sometimes those inconsistent decisions that we make can have consequences, great consequences. And we're going to see tonight where Saul, as a leader, really was inconsistent in his leadership, and he acted not just foolishly out of fear, but he really rebelled in disobedience against God. But here tonight, we want to look at some inconsistencies in his, in his leadership. And a lot of times, it's not, our inconsistencies aren't, as Christians at least, they aren't 
just outright rebellion. You know, we don't wake up in the morning going, okay, I'm going to do something rebellious toward God today. A lot of times, they're little things that just kind of crop up in our lives. And they have a tendency of dragging us down in our Christian life. And so we need, how to le- need to learn how to be more consistent, more faithful, more reliable as men and women, you know, of God. And so the first thing here in verse 24 to 35, uh, we, we see this, him making these, these foolish decisions. And so I just want to read the first, the first uh, couple verses here down to verse 30, beginning in verse 24. It says, And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. Now remember where we left off last week in verse 23. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond Beth-Avon. So they're coming out of this blessing where the Lord has blessed them. He gave them victory. But now in verse 24, the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. So Saul laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it's evening, and I am avenged on, and I have avenged on my enemies." So none of the people had tasted food. Now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And over in Israel, you have bees that sometimes they're in the, they're literally in the ground, honeybees. And so it wasn't an uncommon thing for this to happen. It says they saw this honey was, was dropping out of the, the beehive, but no one put his hand to his mouth. In other words, they were forbidden to eat it. That's what their leader said. But Jonathan, verse 27, had not heard his father's charge to the people with an oath. So what did he do? He put the tip of his staff down in the honey and put it up to his mouth. And it says his eyes became bright. Where, why, why didn't Jonathan hear his dad's rash vow? Where was Jonathan? No, he wasn't in the camp. Where was he? Yeah, he was fighting. Right, right. Saul was back in the camp, right? Remember counting the men <coughs> and making these crazy vows? And so here, he, this decision of, of Saul was just very foolish. And he's doing it because of his own instincts. He's not, he's not being led by the Lord to do this. The Lord didn't tell him, hey, tell your men not to eat anything. How do you end up making foolish decisions in your life? You do it by following your own instincts, by what you think is correct. Whenever you get away from the Bible, whenever you get away from the Word of God as your instruction manual for earth, you're going to end up on questionable ground. It doesn't matter what it is. And so it continues here, and he, it says that, that Jonathan put the tip of his staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put it, his hand to his mouth, and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, hey, uh, Jonathan, you might want to know this. Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright, because I have tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. So here we have Jonathan out there fighting. His dad's back at the camp with all the other folks. He makes this rash vow, until we totally defeat the Philistines, we're not going to eat anything. I'm going to make a vow before the Lord. And if anybody eats anything, your head's on a platter. You're going to be killed. Now, 
when you look at these verses, and like I said, you just re- read verse 23, so the Lord saved Israel that day. It's interesting that they came out of this situation where it looked like vic- victory was imminent. It was like just, well, okay, this is, good. This is just a no-brainer. But what happened here? God brought the victory, and what did Saul do? He, show, he shows this, you might say, strange ability to turn deliverance into distress. So he, he passes this, this vow by binding the men to this oath of not eating until the battle was over. Now, just think of the logic of this. You know, when you, when you are out in war, the one thing you want your men to be filled with is what? You want them, you want them to be filled with nutritionist food, right? I mean, you, you want, if they're going to go in the midst of a battle, you want to make sure that you're not sending them in there about ready to faint of malnutrition. You, you want to make sure that they eat well. And here, Saul is doing just the opposite. He's depriving the men, even though they had an apparent victory was right within arm's reach. And this was Saul's idea. Now, it's a terrible idea. Any military person would tell you that, but it doesn't even take a military person. You know, if you're going to go out and work hard in the yard all day, hopefully you're going to eat a good breakfast, right? I mean, you're not going to go out there on an empty stomach and in the heat of the day and sweat and sweat and expect to finish the job. It's just not going to happen. You're going to end up passing out. God didn't require this. There's nowhere in the Word of God that says, oh, you have to proclaim a fast among the people. It was completely unnecessary. It was one of those rules that people just make up, just out of thin air. And not only that, but it was damaging to the battle that they were involved in, and it was also damaging to his own men. And you can see kind of the egotistical attitude of Saul here because he's not really concerned about that. He's making this rash vow, thinking that somehow he's going to uh, bribe God (laughs) into this victory, when the victory was already theirs. Some people say that, well, Saul was trying to manipulate God into the victory. Um, But all it accomplished, the only thing it accomplished, was tiring out his men during this battle. It almost resulted in killing his own son, as we're going to find out. So in verse 25, the battle moves from the hill country down into what you might consider like a forest, where there's these bees. In God's providence here, he divinely supplied this honey that is, is a very nutritionist thing to eat when you when you're need a lot of energy. And, uh, but they couldn't eat it because of Saul's stupid vow that he made. He made this foolish oath. But his son Jonathan doesn't know it because he's out fighting while, while his dad's home thinking up stupid rules for the army to follow. I mean, it's just that, and you can see how Saul is not trusting in the Lord at all here. He's trusting who? He's trusting in his, he thinks, his ability to lead these people. He already had a close call when he did the offering, remember, before, and that, was, that didn't end well. And now because the Lord gave him victory, he's thinking, well, okay, I'm going to prove these people the leader I am. Proverbs 28:26 says this, He who trusts in himself is a fool. 2826 Proverbs He who trusts in himself is a fool but he who walks in wisdom is kept safe. See when you when you follow when you especially as Christians when we when we live according to our own instincts or our own views or our own thoughts instead of what God says we're on dangerous ground. And that's why it's so important to you know now the Bible doesn't speak to every little thing, right? 
I mean, but it gives you general principles that you can live your life by. And so you, you want to make sure that you're not making foolish decisions based on your own thinking versus decisions that are based upon God's word or at least principles found in God's word. And a lot of times that inconsistency in, in living that way, well, what does the Bible say about that? What does, you know, go back to the Bible, go back to the Bible. When we don't do that, when we're inconsistent in that, what happens to our Christian life? It goes down. It drags us down because we're not heeding God's wisdom. So you make foolish decisions by following your own instincts. You make wise decisions, that proverb says at least, by following God's word. Look at verse uh, 31, 31 to 35 here. So Jonathan says, how much better, in verse 30, 30, if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they had found, for now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. So now it's in question. Verse 31, they struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ajalon, and the people were very faint, and the people pounced. Look at what happens. They got so hungry, and they captured the Philistines' stuff spoils of the war, the people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground. And the people ate them with the blood. That's a no-no for an Israelite. <laughs> okay. Now, that's, that's not saying you can't have a rare steak or a medium rare steak. That's not what that's talking about. And as a New Testament Christian, we're not under this law anyway. This, this comes out of uh, Leviticus. I think it's Leviticus 18, I think, where it talks about having the, the meat with the blood. It's in the book of Leviticus. And it, and it actually gives instructions on how, when you slaughter an animal, they're supposed to you know, cut the animal out, take out everything, hang it up, and let the blood drain out totally. And then once it's drained out, then you can butcher it up and eat it. You know, they can eat meat. It's not like they couldn't eat meat. But they couldn't eat it while the blood was still in the body. All right, that would be like akin to having a cow come in here and we, we start cutting off portions of the cow and cook it. You know, it's, just, it's not a practical thing to do anyway. But they were so blinded by their hunger, that's what they started to do. And uh, they were unable to restrain themselves. Why? Because they weren't eating. Because of their silly leader who made up this silly oath and felt that, well, I'm going to keep this oath irregardless of whatever happens. So the people took this, they, 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 they cut open the thing, they started eating it with the blood, and then they told Saul, by the way, behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. That may indicate that not all the people did this. Some of them may have restrained themselves. I'm not going to touch that. That's not good. That's, that's not the way you prepare these things. But most of them did. And it says, he said, you have dealt treacherously. He has no ability to see what he has added to this situation. He's above all that. You know, it's like sometimes politicians, you know, they create major problems, but then they, they think they're above everything. You know, they're just so focused on themselves. And this is the way Saul was. He says, you have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone here to me. And Saul said, disperse yourselves among the people. You can, you can see the kind of the egotistical attitude he, he has here. He thinks now, okay, they got this victory. And it's not even because of him, right? I mean, he's hiding back in the camp. Jonathan's out there wiping out the Philistines. And it was only after Jonathan and his armor bearer wiped him out that the other people got rallied. And they, they're rallying not around Saul. They're rallying around Jonathan. And I think maybe Saul feels a little threatened by that. You know, he's not getting his due. So he's going to 
fix this in his mind. He says, disperse yourselves, verse 34, among the people and say to them, let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat and do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So you can kind of look at this and go, okay, well, that's not a bad decision. He's trying to take leadership here. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night and they slaughtered them there. And then it says there, and Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he built to the Lord. So in this situation, you have Saul's troops, led by Jonathan, basically, chasing the Philistines all the way from Michmash to uh, Ajalon. It's probably like 20 miles to the west. And now it's evening, which meant... You know, the oath is over because he said until the day's over and when the sun goes down, then you can eat. That was the oath. So they're hungry. They ignore God's command about preparing the meal properly. They eat it with the blood in it. God forbid that. Does anybody know why God in the Old Testament forbid them to eat animals with the literal blood still in it without draining it properly and slaughtering it properly? It tells us because the life is in the blood, right? I mean, you drain somebody's blood out, they're, you know, they're not going to be alive, right? So that's, that's, that's the, the idea there. Um, because the, the blood represents the life of an animal or a life of a human being. You know, the shedding of blood is wrong. Um, but without the shedding of blood, that's why it's so significant that we can't have forgiveness of sin. We can't have that unless there's a shedding of blood. And that's why Christ was the ultimate sacrifice. He shed his own blood and was able to forgive our sin. But you can't help but notice this (coughs) contrast. Here Jonathan unknowingly broke Saul's oath, which he didn't even know about, right, by eating honey. But here are Saul's men, and they're knowingly breaking God's commandment by eating meat with blood still in it. And I get it, they're hungry, they've had a long day, but still that's no excuse. Um... And so he tells him there, don't do this. And he sets up this big stone and he kind of makes himself the center of attention. He's saying, okay, you, if you want to eat, you've got to bring everything to me and we'll sacrifice it properly and we'll do this. You know, the last time Saul sacrificed somebody and didn't work out too well, remember? A couple chapters ago when, when he was supposed to be waiting for Samuel to get there and he didn't wait and he did the sacrifice himself and it cost him his whole whole king kingship so you know i'm surprising he goes there again but that's the way some of these people are they're just so blinded by their their own wisdom their their own foolish uh, decision they can't see anything beyond their own nose and that's where saul ends up here Um, so he tells his man don't sin against the wall the lord let's set up this thing we'll drain the blood we'll do it right and this is the first time he builds an altar only time really that he builds an altar uh, some people say it shows his desire to worship God sincerely. I kind of doubt that. I don't think he's really a follower of God at this point. Uh, he's following himself. He's following his own wisdom. It's not that Saul never made right decisions, but it's just that he wasn't consistent, and he relied on his own wisdom. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 and 6, we know this verse. Trust in the Lord, what? With all your heart, Right? And lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him. And he will make your paths, what, straight. You know, that's a, that's a basic principle that if you apply that to your life, 
Don't lean on your own understanding. Trust in the Lord, that he will get you through the thick of life at times. Because sometimes we're in, we're in tight situations. We're in situations where our back is up against the wall, and we're trying to logically think our way out of it. And sometimes we just have to stop and say, I don't know what to do, God. And then finally God steps in and goes, okay, I'm just going to change the, kind of moves things around here. And this is what you think is you're a really a tight spot. It seems like, you know, all the world's falling in. I'm going to turn this into a blessing. And he turns everything around and, and wow, you just sit back and you go, wow, how did this even happen? That's how God works. But sometimes we don't give God the time to do that. We're so inconsistent in our trust of the Lord. And that's why he says there, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Not just some of it, all of it. It's got to be 100%. I mean, if we're going to trust Christ for our salvation, which is pretty significant, right? Why can't we trust God or the Lord to help us meet the rent payment or to help us pay the bills or to help us with our relationships or to help us in other areas of our lives? You know, uh, that's a very practical question. And we need to be consistent that, you know, okay, we're going to apply God's principles to these situations and we're going to trust God for the outcome. So we don't want to make foolish decisions. Well, the second point here in verse 36, we see where wavering back and forth decision, because he's not only struggling with consistency, making the right decision, making wise decisions, making wrong decisions. He was also having trouble wavering back and forth on these decisions. And, you know, that's, that's one thing that is, is not good for a leader to do. Any kind of leader. It could be a manager at work or whatever. You know, um, I've talked to people who've worked for, for people who, you know, well, okay, how do you want to handle this situation? Well, okay, we'll have a meeting. Okay. In the meeting, the leader says, well, okay, we're going to do this. So everybody starts in that direction. And then later that afternoon, well, no, I changed my mind. We're going to do this. That is so frustrating. It's so frustrating. You know, it's, even if it's a wrong decision, you stick with it and, and, and at least, you know, correct it if you need to. But, but at least, hopefully, if you made it prayerfully and you're following the Lord's wisdom, it's not going to be a wrong decision. So you can continue down that path. But whenever you're wavering back and forth, nobody likes that kind of thing. You know, it's like if you ask somebody, you know, sometimes my wife and I go out to eat. Where do you want to eat? Uh, I don't know. Where do you want to eat? Uh, it's just an irritating situation. I hate to get in that situation. And it's just like, just pick the place and we'll go. I don't care where it's at, what we eat. I just want to go eat somewhere. And it's, you know, but when we're back and forth, maybe we'll go here, maybe we'll go there. And we both do it at times. So it's not just my wife, it's me as well. And so, you know, that wavering back and forth. So one point here in verse 36 to 39 is don't make promises that you can't keep. Look at verse 36. Then Saul said, after he built this altar, Let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. So he's trying to steal some of this glory that Jonathan kind of had already uh, worked up for himself because he was the one leading this battle, not Saul. But here's Saul stepping in and and he's making this, this plan. And they said, you know what? Do whatever seems good to you. You know, when you're at that point with a leader... If you're leading people and you, and you, you say something that, that may be irrational and the people go, yeah, whatever you want, pal, go ahead, go for it. That, what's that mean? That means they have no, no respect for you, right? They, they don't care anymore. And that's what the people were saying here. They're like, yeah, okay, do whatever you want. Do what seems good to you. 
He didn't like that answer. So in verse 41, he says, Therefore Saul said, O Lord God of Israel. Or or verse 37, I'm sorry. And Saul inquired of God. So he kind of lays this out before the men. And they say, well, do whatever you want. But the priest that he had with him, who was basically an illegitimate priest, he wasn't a real priest. He was of that cursed line that shouldn't have been a priest anyway. And so he he has this, this priest following him around who's not really appropriately a priest, and he's inquiring of him. And the priest says, you know, let us draw near to God. Even this illegitimate priest saw the folly of Saul's plan here. He said, let's ask God about this. And Saul inquired of God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? Who just did this previously? Jonathan, right? And what happened? God answered his prayer, right? God gave him clear direction. Well, look at what happens with Saul here. It says, but God, he did not answer him that day, verse 37. And rather than wait, (laughs) Saul, verse 38, and Saul said, come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. So immediately, Saul just assumes that God should answer just like that. And because he doesn't, he jumps to the conclusion, and he's right, in a way, we're going to find out here, that someone within the camp is uh, sinning. Now, to continue the battle at night is probably a questionable thing. I don't think they had night optics back there and all that kind of stuff. So, I mean, it was kind of a questionable thing. Usually, battles didn't happen at night for that reason. But who knows? Maybe it was a full moon. They had some light. I don't know. What's the one thing Saul should have done before he came up with this plan? Yeah, ask the Lord, right? I mean, just, you know, just eat a little humble pie and say, God, I don't know what to do here. Should I go after these people or not? And and maybe God would have been gracious to him, but he doesn't do that. And he, he just continues to assume certain things. And the people say, you know, do whatever seems good to you. The priest says, let us draw near to God here. Saul inquired, God doesn't answer. And then Saul said, come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see if the sinners are risen today, verse 39, for as the Lord lives, and he makes these hasty vows that are just kind of crazy, as the Lord lives, who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. I mean, he didn't know what went on with Jonathan yet. You know, he's still kind of up in the air about all this. But it's, it's interesting that he actually makes this vow. He makes a vow that, a promise here, that he can't keep by any stretch of the imagination. And he's, you can see he's just kind of making this up as he goes. What's interesting when it says there, if the guilt is in him or in Jonathan, my son, O Lord, give, or up, up further there, verse uh, 39, that he shall surely die. That's the same terminology that's used in Genesis when God told Adam, right? If you don't eat, you can't eat from the tree of knowledge, good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will, what? Surely die. Same, same words. The difference is that when God warned Adam about the just punishment for his sin, God would not waver, but follow through. Saul is just making this up as he goes. He's, he's just kind of you know, kind of going through the motions here. And he will not follow through on his vow. Now, look at what else happens here. It says, uh, 
But there was not a man among all the people who answered him. Now remember, he's standing in front of all the people and he's saying, okay, who's sinning here? You know what? Even if it's my own son, that man's going to die. Just, just a crazy statement. And all the people were like going, oh, it is your son, but we're not going to be the one that tells you. Why don't you think they wanted to tell Saul what happened to Jonathan? In a word, respect. They respected Jonathan. Why? Because he was out there fighting with right along. See, he was leading the pack. He was the one doing all the hard work. Here's Saul just making the stuff up as he goes, counting his men back in the camp. And now he wants the glory for it. And the people are just like, you know, Saul, do whatever you want. It doesn't, we don't even care anymore. And then verse 40, then he said to all the people, you shall be on one side and I and Jonathan, my son, will be on the other side. I think it's just the providence of God. This is how he divided it up. And the people said to Saul, do whatever seems good to you. Now look at what he says in verse 40, 41 here. You know, the, the Bible says in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, it says, do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth. So let your words be few. It's better not to vow than to what? Make a vow and not keep it. You think Saul would have learned his uh, lesson by now. If you're going to make a promise, you should be consistent with the track record of keeping your promises. That's just basic one-on-one living, but as a Christian, it's even more important. And then be willing to admit when you're wrong. And you see this here in verses 40 to 44. It was wrong for Saul to make the oath, even back about eating the honey. That was just a crazy thing he made up out of, out of, you know, out of the blue. He just kind of pulled this thing out. Okay, if anybody eats today, uh, you know, you can't do that until the, the war is over, the battle's over. Uh, so once you've made a foolish vow, according to Ecclesiastes, you're kind of stuck with it. But at least you have to be willing to admit when you're wrong. And no matter what you've done about this, whether you're, you're right, wrong, whatever, there's, there's a right way forward. And we kind of see what happens but Saul doesn't do that here instead of admitting he was wrong Saul only makes matters worth so the people are like yeah do whatever you want he lines all the people up and then he says uh, verse 34 O God of Israel why have you not answered your servant this day if this guilt is in me or in Jonathan my son O Lord God of Israel give Urim and Thurim and that's the way that they would pronounce uh, the Lord's will, they use this uh, kind of like casting lots, you might say. This is what they would use. But if the guilt is in the people of Israel, give the, the uh, Thuman. And it says, and Jonathan and Saul were taken. In other words, the, the lot fell on them. So the people are off the hook. They're not the people that sinned. They were just doing what they were told to do. And then it says, and Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. Then Saul said, cast the lot between me and my son Jonathan. And guess what happened? The lot fell, rightfully so, on Jonathan. He was the one that broke this vow that Saul foolishly made. It's his own son. And you'd think at some point here, you know, Saul would come to his senses. (laughs) You know, how far down this path do you want to take this? Because he's already lost the the trust of his people. It says in verse 43 there, then Saul said to Jonathan, this is dad speaking to son, tell me what you've done. And Jonathan told him. 
You know what, Dad? I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I will die. <laughs> That's a pretty good answer, right? He admits it. He, just, he doesn't try to hide. He's like, okay. You know, he's kind of like saying, you're, you're an idiot, Dad. But here's what happened. Because you made this foolish vow that doesn't make any sense in anybody's mind. But here I am. I'm ready to die. And Saul said, God do so to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. Now all the people are watching this. They don't already care for Saul too much. And it says in verse 45, Then the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die? (laughs) Who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Like, are you serious? Have you lost your mind completely? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground. For he has worked with God this day. And then you have the phrase, which is very telling of our own salvation. So the the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. Jonathan was the, the, the one that was on God's side. Jonathan was in stark contrast to his dad, the king, who was on his way out, basically, who did not understand the leading of God. He did not trust God. And so here is, is the people standing up for, for Jonathan before the king that they no longer respected because he was taking him down the wrong path. And so they issued a counter oath. <laughs> They said, if, if, if anybody harms Jonathan's life, uh, they're going to have some problems. I don't care if you're the king or not. So Saul, in his foolishness, in his inconsistency, in his stubbornness, he had totally lost the trust of his men as king. 1 Corinthians 4.2 says, Now it is required that those who have been given a trust, they must prove themselves faithful. And all the way back when Samuel told Saul, go to this place, wait for seven days, I'll come, we'll do the offering, and then we'll proceed from there. And what happened? Well, the people got restless, Saul panicked, he acted in fear, he did the offering himself. From that point on, he's headed down the tube. It's not going to work out. That word, by the way, in 1 Corinthians 4, 2, faithful means reliable, it means consistent which goes along with good leadership. Trust is a a valuable commodity. Uh, And when you have inconsistencies in your life all over the place, what happens? You you lose people's trust. You know, we see that uh, in in professions all all over the place. Well, look at what it says there in verse 46. It says, Then Saul went up, then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. When it says there that the the people ransomed Jonathan, that's the same terminology that the New Testament speaks of Christ being able to purchase us, to ransom us from our own sin. And so it's very telling that what Christ has done to secure our salvation. But in verse 46 here, we see a point, don't become weary and give up. And this is kind of the fourth principle from this section because it's, it says that Saul stopped pursuing. He just stopped. Saul went up or stopped from pursuing the Philistines and the Philistines went to their own place. 
I mean, he had them right there. He should have finished them off. But he didn't. They were at the advantage. They were pressing the enemy. But what happens? An inconsistent leader doesn't finish the job. He withdrew. And here the Philistines withdrew. They went to their own land. They regrouped. They were able to rebuild, to strengthen themselves for the next attack. It's kind of, you know, you see that in modern warfare even. When, you know, you go into a certain country and... You know, it, war is horrible, don't get me wrong, but you can't handle war with a touchy-feely attitude. You know, some people have a, have a problem when, you know, if, a, if our nation's threatened or whatever by a group of people, whether it's ISIS or whatever. You know, you, you can't handle people like that in a, in a coddled way. You have to go in and wipe them out. And until that's done, they're going to come back to haunt you. And that's what happens with the Philistines, as we'll find out eventually galatians 6 9 says let us not become weary in doing good for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up you know i think we all grow weary at times especially in this world we live in live in the christian life day in day out and then you look at all the people who are living non-christian unrighteous lives and it's almost like they're being blessed materially you know in in so many different ways you know, that can really cause you to question some things. And that's why the Bible says that. Don't become weary in doing good. Don't worry about it. You know, your reward may not be here. It may be in glory. But you continue to do what's right before God. And at the proper time, at his time is the idea. It's God's providence here. We will reap a harvest if we do not give up. And God has given us a task, all of us, to do something for Christ. You know, don't don't give up, even though you don't succeed. You, maybe maybe by the world's standards, you're not succeeding, or you're you're trying to do something and it's not working out. Whatever it is, the Bible says, continue to be faithful in that, and He will, at the proper time, reap a harvest. We'll look at verse forty-seven, and we'll kind of go down to the end of the, the chapter here. But it it talks about man's estimate or God's estimate. In other words, from whose perspective are we looking at this? And sometimes we can look at our own situation in a way where sometimes you can grow discouraged. You know, I was just talking to somebody today. I said, yeah, it's interesting, you know, the waves in the Bay Area here that as a church we go through. And uh, I was saying, you know, a couple years ago, we would have VBS and we'd have a ton of our own kids. Right now we're in one of those downward ways. People are moving out of the Bay Area. They can't afford it. They're taking their kids with them. And I said, you know, it's interesting just how that works. You know, it, it's sometimes we'll have a bunch of kids. Sometimes we won't as a church. And so, you know, it, that's just the way it is. It's just the, the tide and ebb and flow of the, the tide of the Bay Area. And it's, it's just a frustrating place to minister and it, the bay area is kind of like that it's very transitory people come they can't afford to live here they don't realize that at first they come plugged in hey, you know i gotta move somewhere else and that's fine i mean god bless them you know but it's just it's sometimes it's a struggle but you have to go back and you have to say you know what i'm not gonna grow weary in doing that somebody's got a pastor churches here in, in in the bay area it'd be it'd be easy to go back to pennsylvania or down the bible belt or even up in in Idaho or somewhere and pastor a church where everybody's, you know, loves God and well, oh, just lo-. well, but you know, here you're kind of in the thick of it. And are you looking at it from God's perspective or are you looking at it from man's perspective? 
And that's what begins to unfold here. Look at verse 47. It says, when, when Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side. So this is kind of like the, the last glorious <laughs> mention of Saul. He fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them. And he did valiantly and struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered him. Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan, Ishvi, Malkisua, and the names of his two daughters were these. The names of the firstborn was Marab, and the name of the younger was Michal, and the name of Saul's wife, Ahinoam, and the daughter of, uh, she was the daughter of uh, Ahimaz, and the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle, Kish, the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. And there was hard fighting, verse 52 says, against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul, Saul, any strong man or any valiant man, he attached himself, him to himself. And so this is, this is kind of seeing the, the downfall of, of Saul. I mean, it starts off here in verse 47 saying, you know what, he, was, he did his basic job as a king. He tried to do, you know, he, he, he routed all these, these people. But what, what is going to be seen in the end? And that's kind of man's perspective. You know, they looked at Saul and they thought, okay, well, from, for a king's point of view, he did do all this stuff. That's great. But if all you read about Saul's life was this, you'd think he was a great king. If that's all you could see, it sounds pretty good. But what's missing from that summary? Yeah, there's no mention of God. None. It's all about Saul. He did this, he did that, he did this. And it's like, wow. You know, so the point is, how will people measure your life? The Bible says in Luke chapter 9, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet, what, lose or forfeit his own soul? How will people measure your life? We're all going to die one day. We're all going to end up in the ground or whatever. And, you know, how, how are people going to look back at your life? What will they say at your funeral? Will God be part of that story? Or would, would it just be all about you? And the second question is, how will God measure your life? Because he will. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul writes this, Chapter 4, verse 4 and 5, he says, My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. At that time, he will receive his praise from God. In other words, in the end, it's God who's going to be doing the judging. And so... You know, he knows our motives. He knows everything. It's not just a, you know, a, a whiteboard with, okay, how many times did you come to church? Check. How many times did you read your Bible? Check. You, did you do this? Did you do that? It's not that. It's the entirety of your life that he is looking at. 
And so you have to stop and you have to ask yourself, are you looking at life from God's perspective or are you looking at life from man's perspective? And Saul, unfortunately, looked at it from his own perspective, from man's perspective. Uh, We're called to build our life one day at a time. God's looking for not perfection. He's looking for consistency. There's a big difference between perfection and consistency. Consistency is just hanging in there, you know, continuing to try to do what's right. Yeah, sometimes you're going to slip up. Sometimes you're going to fail. Sometimes you're going to sin. That's fine. You go back to God, you confess your sin, you move on. You don't allow it to keep you down. Be consistent in, in reading your Bible, consistent in prayer, consistent in church attendance, in fellowship, in serving, sharing your faith, whatever it might be. Because that's the people that God's looking for. He's not looking for somebody like Saul who looks so great on the outside and can say, yeah, look at all these armies I've gone against and I've won every battle. Or most of the battles, I should say. Not every battle, but most of them. You know, that's not what God's looking for. God's looking at what? He's looking at the heart. He's looking at, do we really understand that he's not judging just on a, a checkbox kind of a thing. He's judging, you know, what's the, the motivation of your heart? And so we don't want to settle for this on again, off again kind of commitment. And that's what Jesus even spoke against in the New Testament. He said, look, you're free to follow me, but if you follow me, guess what? You're going to have to take up your cross daily, every day, and you're going to have to deny yourself, and then you can follow me. So, you know, the Christian life is not for the faint-hearted, and you just see this, this big contrast between the life of Jonathan who unfortunately probably would have made a wonderful king, but because of his dad's uh, disobedience and rebellion against God and his, his concentration on himself most of the time, uh, was disqualified. And so uh, we'll never know what kind of king he would make. But you know, through Christ's death on the cross for us, there is always that forgiveness if we do fail, if we do fall for our own sins. But let's try to be consistent in our walk with the Lord all the days of our lives. And hopefully that's what we'll be remembered for.